Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. This week, the next phase in the war in Ukraine. So from the very start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Kyiv's military has performed above expectations, just as much as Moscow has done worse than we expected. And perhaps that's why, in recent weeks, there have been high hopes for what Ukraine could achieve in its much-anticipated counterattack on Russian forces. So much so that Ukrainian Defense Minister Oleksiy Reznikov found it necessary recently to downplay expectations. But has Ukraine's counteroffensive already begun? The signs are there. Ukrainian forces have reportedly taken back kilometers of territory around Bakhmut, a besieged city in the country's east, among several other advances in neighboring parts. So what happens next, and what does it mean for the future of this conflict? Well, my guest this week is an astute military expert. Dara Masico is a senior policy researcher at the RAND Corporation and was previously a senior analyst at the Pentagon, where she focused on Russia's military capabilities. As always, FP subscribers send us loads of questions for these discussions. If you'd like to do that too, subscribe now. Use the code FPLIVE, one word, for a discount. You can also watch these discussions live on video if you go to foreignpolicy.com live. You know the drill. For now, here's Dara Massico. Dara, welcome to FP Live. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you on. So let's start with this. Ukraine's made some clear advances on the battlefield in the last week. It seems to be encircling Russian forces in Bakhmut. It might be closing in on Solidar. Just give us a sense of how significant uh, these approaches might be in the wider scheme of the war. Well, I'd like to start by talking about what happened around Bakhmut. So over the last few days, the Ukrainians have been able to push on Russian forces and they've gained... Um, in some cases, a few kilometers, um, in some cases, less than that, on the north and south of the city. And Wagner continues to hold the city itself, and, and it does hold a majority of it. I think it's 85% to 90%. Wagner is the, the mercenary group that Russia often uses. Yes. Um, but I'd like to say a little bit about some of the Russian forces that were pushed back. Um, these were volunteer units that were scraped together last year in Russia, whether it was the 72nd Brigade or whether it was the 4th Brigade, those are actually affiliated with Luhansk proxy groups. So those units, think of them as really low discipline, low training units. And when they came into contact with the Ukrainian forces, they essentially crumbled. Wow. Um, yeah, my, my understanding is that um, there are parts of the front line that are not as bad as that. So when we see these initial gains at Bakhmut, it's really important to understand what they were pushing up against. Um, this was not exactly your, your crack um, group of troops. Um, behind them, there is there are better troops, um, airborne units and other things like that. But this is a very early phase. I say that we are probably looking at the opening phases of a, a Ukrainian counteroffensive. And I think it's a process. I don't think it's going to be a, everything all at once, you know, at one time. I have no insights into what they're doing, um, but it seems to me like there's some shaping operations underway. Right. And, you know, I, I guess the um, for months now, because so many of us have been trying to anticipate what a spring offensive might look like, when it might happen, 
I guess what you said really sticks with me, which is that it's not like it happens everything all at once. Uh, there are little things here or there. So I guess just pushing that a little bit further, where, where do you think we are in that process? Well, so there's a lot of things that come into play from the Ukrainian decision here. A lot of it is weather related. You have to make sure the ground is dry and hard enough for them to proceed. You have to make sure that you have all your logistics set up, uh, really have to be ready. So I'm sure that they are making those decisions when the right time is for them. And President Zelensky has uh, been very upfront with the fact that, you know, they'll proceed when they're ready. What I can detect on the Russian side is a growing amount of nervousness, at least within the um, active uh, Russian mill blogger community. And even a little bit from the official side, the way they're acting, there's not a lot of communication, even when they're facing very unexpected events like the explosions that you talked about. So I think they have shifted onto a defensive stance and now they're waiting to. Mm. Talk to us a little bit more about how Russia might be reacting to what it's hearing from the Ukrainian side. And I guess I'm also curious about the recent discord leaks and whether that has shaped Russia's perception of what's coming. Uh, has Ukraine lost any element of surprise because of that? Again, what's your sense overall of how Russia is thinking through the next few weeks and months? So I look at where they make resource decisions and where they're putting things on the ground, because that tells me a lot about where they're concerned. They have a lot of their um, units that are in, still in a relatively good shape, and it's all relative. There are no Russian units that are in a good shape right now. Um, but the ones that are the healthiest are down near Zaporizhia which tells me that they remain very concerned that the Ukrainians will try to cut their occupation lines in half. That land bridge to Crimea, they'll try to just cut that off and separate them from Crimea. At least that's what it looks like to me on the ground in terms of where their heaviest fortifications are, where they are piling up troops. So that's what I think that they're bracing for, that land bridge corridor being severed. In terms of Discord leaks, obviously just not a not great time. It's never a good time for leaks, but uh, this is not a good time um, for these kind of leaks to divulge information about, you know, the status of um, Ukrainian air defenses or, you know, what type of armored equipment they're trying to pull up. You know, the Russians, for all their mistakes, they still do have collection capacity. And if you look at the, the decisions that they had made prior to the leaks, um, they seem to understand that Ukrainian air defenses were not infinite and they've been trying to exhaust them over time. So I, I think um, in terms of how Russia processes the discord leaks, I think it kind of confirms a lot of the things that they they believed um, about mm. what they do. But they just face so many challenges at this point in terms of um, generating enough missiles to really like, you know, rapidly degrade Ukrainian SAMs. I don't think they can do it for the counteroffensive. Give us a bit more of a sense of the health of the Russian military right now. I was really struck by what you said about the types of soldiers who were stationed in Bakhmut um, and how they were relatively easier to sort of push back. But that might not be the case in other parts of territories that Russia is currently controlling. So give us a bit of an overview of what, what kinds of troop placements are where and what that means then for the next few weeks of the war. Yes, um, and I, you know, I want to say that there's a lot of uncertainty 
you know, on both sides here moving forward, right? So the Ukrainians are, are launching a, a combined arms counteroffensive, presumably, and that's, that's, that's difficult. On the Russian side, they are a front line made of multiple different groups of troops, and, have, and I'll, I'll walk through what that means. <laughs> Neither group um, is, is uh, really going to know what it's going to be encountering until it meets that moment of contact. So the fog and friction of war is very real. On the Russian side, um, you have really only a small percentage of those units that, that are um, you know, fully combat capable. I would say that there are some elements of the Russian airborne forces that still retain um, this sort of esprit de corps and fighting capacity. Um, overall, not a lot of them as a force. It's been heavily attrited, but those units right now are fighting in Crimea and areas um, along the line of contact. Those were the ones that were evacuated from Kherson um, last fall when they evacuated across the river. That's that's that group. Then there are army units, which are you know, mostly okay, maybe down in Zaporizhia, um, more south towards Crimea, that never saw that kind of intense fighting in the early days, like the units from Kiev and Kharkiv did. Um, and then you start going down from there in terms of readiness. Um, some units are heavily attrited. They're down to 60%, 50%. In Russian military thinking, if a unit is that heavily attrited, it cannot fight. They have been ignoring their own doctrine on this point and continuing to keep units in place. They've tried to remedy that by injecting them with mobilized personnel with days of training, weeks of training in some cases, to get wow. those numbers up. But it doesn't make, just because your battalion is back at 80%, 90% manning, doesn't mean that it can fight because the people that you've put in it have little to no skills. Um, so it's um, a really mixed bag. And then you still have LPR and DNR proxy groups, and they're a very mixed bag of readiness and motivation. They have not been treated well by the Russians for nine years. Um, some of them are conscripted themselves and just want to survive. There are so many parts of this front line that are a question mark. And when they go on the defensive, we're not going to know how they respond, really. There's systemic problems at lower levels of leadership. And when you're spread out on all these defensive positions and you're being shelled and mortared and drone attacks and you don't have um, effective um, field grade commanders with you, panic sets in and wow. it can it can crack. Dara, given everything you say, I mean, I have to say much of what you're describing would be a surprise to many people who don't understand Russia's military well, but you've studied them for so long. How much of this lack of preparation, this calling up of conscripts who are not prepared, calling up people who get a week or a few weeks of training, how much of this has surprised you over the course of the last 14 odd months? Um, I guess what, what surprises me the most is that they have uh, so many processes to do this, to bring the state to a higher readiness, to fight a war of this intensity, to, to mobilize the economy, to mobilize people. If there's a very elaborate process that they've talked about, that they've done in the past, none of that was really done um, here in this war. Everything seemed kind of last minute in the way that they knew that they needed to mobilize. And so they threw it together and, and threw people into the front. They're starting to get their act together a bit here, but but mostly I've I've been 
surprised at how um, they have disregarded a lot of their own planning principles and their own things that they have talked about. And this goes from Gerasimov on down the line in the running of this war. And I, you know, I don't want to go back to my previous statement. I don't want to give the impression that the line is the, the Russian front is totally brittle and it can be punched punched through at any place. I, I don't think that's the case. Mm. Uh, it's just that we don't know where the, the weakest parts are, you know, from looking at drones and looking at the, the sky. They're trying to um, dig in with artillery and with trenches and physical impediments, mines to make this really hard for the Ukrainians. So there's still that that possibility that they can, you know, get them in this kill zone and try to target them with positions. Given everything you're saying so far about the disorganization on the Russian side, and given that we know about this, obviously the Ukrainian military is thinking through these weaknesses. Given what you say, what do you think are the likely military goals of a potential Ukrainian counterattack? But you know, I wouldn't want to um, you know speculate. I'm, I'm sure that they've got a, a good idea of what they're going to do. Um, you know, when I when I think about it, I think about the different types of pressure that they have been able to put on the Russians over time to get them to leave um, from Kiev, uh, from areas around Kiev. Um, Kherson and Kharkiv, and they find the weak spots and they exploit it um, and they make it so logistically complicated in the case of Kherson that the Russians couldn't stay. They had to withdraw or the attacks were so significant on logistics and on the forces themselves up in um, around the battle for Kiev that they had to withdraw to, to save their firepower. So I, you know, I think that there's probably an understanding of that kind of approach as well. Um, you know, figure out where they can get some um, successful ratios here, where they can push on units that are heavily degraded. Um, I don't know if we'll see another event like we did in Kharkiv, where um, they punched through a very weak spot. Um, there were no defensive positions prepared and everything kind of collapsed in on itself. I, I don't know if we'll see that kind of rapid change again. And I, I think the Ukrainians are, are pretty upfront about that, that this is going to be harder. Um, it's going to be slower and more methodical. And there will be losses, will be losses on both sides here. So I think you know when we when we look ahead, there's so many ranges of things that are possible right now. You could have a collapse because morale in a certain sector is horrible, um, or you could have this slow, very you know fighting through defensive lines that stretch back in some cases 20 kilometers. A lot of uncertainty. You are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com live. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, which we often take on their behalf. So sign up. Use the code FPLive for a discount. Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast 
features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes, or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. I want to ask you about Crimea, just theoretically, how important is it in this war, um, just as a, a point through which Russia can launch attacks? How important is it to both sides? There are analysts like former NATO Supreme Commander Philip Breedlove, who will say that without Crimea, Ukraine will never win and the war will never truly be over. What's your take? You know, I, I think there is some truth to that. Someone said that Crimea was a dagger pointed at the heart of Ukraine while it's occupied. And the Russians can continuously use it as a launch pad for attacks, whether that's um, from the air, you know, they maintain uh, multiple air bases down there, or they can fire long range um, ground launch cruise missiles once they get those stocks replenished, um, you know, and they can continue to reinforce that line of occupation in the east. So, you know, it it is important, um, but Ukraine understands, I, th- I think, very well its its position. Um, fighting through to Crimea may, may be pretty challenging because they have to kind of come up and over river and down to, to get it. Um, not impossible, um, but there's just there's so many different areas to push on. You know, I think they are going to have to choose where they go first. From the Russian uh, perspective, and again, I know that's your primary expertise here, how much importance do the Russians place on Crimea? I think both from a military uh, standpoint, but also personally in this case for Putin. Yeah, I, and I think here it's it's important to um, just temporarily disaggregate occupied Crimea from the rest of the occupied holdings because they've had Crimea for so long, um, illegally, uh, for so long, for nine years now, um, and have had um, a lot of opportunity to present that as Russian. It's not, um, you know, build build up a significant amount of military capacity there. It's important for the Black Sea, um, for their power projection forward into the Black Sea. Um, I think that there is a there is an ongoing conversation in town about, you know, is Crimea viewed differently to the Russians in, in sense of escalation value than the other parts that is occupying. I think about the question like this. There is nothing that Ukraine can do to Russia that would trip Russia's official on the books nuclear escalation or um, nuclear tripwires that they have in their doctrine and their strategy. It's just not possible. You know, then there is the, the question that is an unknown about the political side of the question. Would losing Crimea be so embarrassing to Putin that he would feel like his back is against the wall and he has to lash out with nuclear weapons. I don't know. I don't think so. And here's why. Who's challenging him? There's nobody in Russia who is posing a a challenge to his leadership that he can identify right now. People are not in the streets. Would they go to the streets for Crimea or do they just want this war to end? So I, you know, I, I think that I think that the, the conversation um, certainly needs a, a little bit more conversation, I think, on, on Crimea. They're certainly trying to deter people from that outcome. 
I just don't I was, know that I, I was struck by when you said that there's nothing that Ukraine can do that would change Russia's stance on using nuclear weapons. Can you yes. explain that a bit more? Yes. Um, so if you if you look at um, what Russia considers to be a threshold for using nuclear weapons, it is a um, mass conventional attack on Russia that threatens the survivability of the state. And here they're talking about a conventional war with NATO, like thousands of cruise missiles coming in and destroying the government, the military uh, sites, those things. Um, Ukraine, of course, can't do that. Um, another one is an attack on Russia's nuclear triad. Um, Ukraine can't do that. Um, or on their space-based architecture that controls the nukes, they can't do that. So it's um, that's, that's a very glib <laughs> um, overview of a very complicated topic. Um, but the notion that somehow, um, you know, Ukraine can can get Russia to a place of vulnerability that, that would militarily require them to use nuclear weapon response is ridiculous. It's wow. a, that's like a deterrence. Russian I, deterrence. I, I just want to push you on this a little bit more, Dara, because many, many of our subscribers are very interested in this idea as well. But how has your thinking evolved on the nuclear issue over the last, you know, over the course of the war? There are some who will say that partly because it's now been so long and Putin hasn't used a nuclear weapon that it makes it less and less likely that he ever will. But also the idea that there are certain types of assurances from the likes of Beijing or Delhi that the West has received uh, that a, a nuclear the use of a nuclear weapon would constitute a red line for those countries and Putin wouldn't want to cross that red line. But on the other, on the other hand, uh, if he were to lose something like Crimea and it would be so politically damaging or personally damaging. And I know you just said that no one's challenging him on that, um, but we don't exactly know how to predict how he'll react. That's true. That's true. So, you know, there, there has been a point in this war where I did feel some concern that they were looking for an option to escalate this. Um, and that was after the collapse of Kharkiv. Because at the time, the Russian front was in a very bad place because they hadn't mobilized. These units were barely clinging on um, in some cases. And there was really no way for them to spin their way out of that one because it was a collapse. It was a panic. Um, and I, I do, you know, it's something in my mind, like what happens if there's something that happens to them rapidly that they can't spin their way out of? Um, like the front collapses. And I think that's probably a very low probability event, but you know, one we have to keep in mind. Um, how can they sell that? Mm. Also, there are several um, several steps that have to occur before we get to this kind of nuclear signaling, even signaling. You know, they would, other things they would try first, like they would try um, cyber attacks. They would try to influence or, you know, um, jam or, or some, send some sort of signal to our space-based architecture, like our satellites. None of that's happening. Russia has been um, deliberately um, escalatory within Ukraine, but they have not broadened that to NATO pretty much in any way other than um, a few cyber probes, um, cyber attacks against Poland. Um, you know, they're just not there. And as long as they feel like they have a play, like they can keep mobilizing people, they can keep producing, you know, 
a couple dozen tanks a month, repair a couple other dozen tanks a month or whatever they need to do, as long as they feel like they have that play, they're going to continue down that path. So I, I just don't think that we're, um, I don't think that, at least from what I can tell, I don't think that that's really a nuclear, we're not there. Given what you say, how long can Russia sustain this war? Well, so that's where the bad news comes in. Um, they can sustain it. Um, I think that they need this, the active phase of this fighting to end, not only for the equipment replenishment, but also for the people involved, because they are, they're staring down the barrel of a recruiting and retention crisis mm -hmm. uh, in the military. And the longer this goes on, the worse that gets. In terms of how they can sustain it, they are slowly trying to pull on the mechanisms legally in Russia to direct more funds and reduce red tape um, to the defense industry. There are so many bottlenecks, though, in the Russian defense industry that all of this money, um, all the resources won't necessarily force it to start cranking out, you know, things in this rapidly, you know, higher gear of efficiency. They face structural problems, sanctions, the labor pool. So there's only so much that it can do. But that being said, it's still a defense base that's intact. It's not being destroyed and targeted. Ukraine is now very dependent on Western aid. Um, and when the active phase of the war is over, um, they'll, they're going to need help to get their own defense industrial base back online again. So, I mean, there's Russia is trying to play for time here. And time, I think, you know, time in the sense of years benefits them. And then given what you say about Russia playing for time, but Ukraine kind of has the opposite problem. Uh, it wants to act relatively quickly because this is a war on its turf. It is losing people. Its economy is, you know, absolutely battered over the last year and a half. And then it also is so dependent on the West for aid and support, um, much of which it's been trying to get in the last few months to prepare um, for, for this spring offensive. So I guess what I'm getting at is how crucial are the next few weeks and months for Ukraine? Um, well, I, I do think that, you know, I agree with you that they don't have time to play for time. And, you know, they want to, they have an understanding that the longer that Russia stays in place, um, the more suffering that occurs on the, you know, under occupation, under Russian occupation, and the more they have the time, the Russians do, to dig in and entrench. And it will become more difficult to get them out. So what they want to do is continuously push them back, not let them call another round of mobilization or, or try to change the battlefield before they do. Really, it's to their benefit to, to try to get um, as much as they can done as soon as possible. But, you know, I the other thing that I probably would like to note, and, and I agree with um is Ukrainian Defense Minister Reznikov, who was saying, like, let's, you know, please don't make this a counteroffensive, like, you know, don't put all the stakes on this, like, if this doesn't look, you know, if it doesn't move quickly or have this, you know, viral moment of success um, to give up and think that there's not another opportunity, this is going to be a long, a long process. So they're, they're trying to set expectations as well. Mm. What's your sense of the sort of weapons game in this? I mean, Ukraine has been asking for more and different types of arms from the West, some of which it's getting, some of which it's not getting enough of. 
what's your sense of the push and pull on that? And is it your sense that, you know, the West has moved quickly enough to give Ukraine what it needs? I'm conscious of the fact here that obviously the West doesn't have everything either. It needs to keep stuff for itself, but that it's also been waiting to see how this conflict evolves. Well, um, so I could break that into a few different parts. Um, you know, I think there's a few instances where there's a desire to want to push things to them, like um, in air defense realm, whether it's Patriot or IRST or NASAMS. Uh, the global inventory is, is just not that robust. Um, there's certainly more out there than Ukraine is being provided right now, but this is an area of underinvestment um, within our own force. Um, and now it's uh, being, you know, compounded because there are you know, demands for this. Um, so there's a structural issue there that needs to be so that it, it's fixed um, uh, in the years ahead. There's also the question of long range strike. Um, there's a lot of debate on, you know, uh, longer range equipment. Storm Shadow is in Ukraine now and Storm Shadow has been used. Ukraine, this is from the UK. It's um, a longer range uh, munition. It's longer than HIMARS. And the Ukrainians have been able to put it to immediate use. They just used it in Luhansk um, and targeted, I believe it was a Russian logistics depot or a command node. I, I forget which one. I apologize. But they were able to um, target areas safely that they haven't been able to reach before. It's going to impact the Russians in a few ways. When HIMARS came on scene, uh, the Russians had to change their logistics. They had to push back their command and control nodes 80 kilometers to the rear. It impacts how they control their forces. It impacts their logistics. They're going to have to continuously push back now out of storm shadow range. So the longer range you give them, the more the Russians have to cope with it. And, uh, you know, the Ukrainians have, have said that if you give us attackums, we, we won't fire it beyond a certain point so that it won't go, you know, into Russia. Like, just let's work something out. Um, and that debate is ongoing. Um, you know, we, there's, I think, also an inventory problem as well. And I'm not super familiar with our exact numbers on ATACM. So, you know, take what I say with a grain of salt. But it's not, um, it's a complicated uh, conversation. It's, it's an ongoing conversation. But the Ukrainians have shown that once, once something comes on the scene, they put it to use right away, just like they did with Patriot, just like they did with HIMARS. And I know uh, probably with whatever else that we we do give them. Mm. Um, I'm going to start taking some of our subscriber questions directly. Jack Flores um, from U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin's office um, writes in to ask, what does force generation uh, look like for the Ukrainians in anticipation of the spring counteroffensive? So, you know, again, I, I'm not as um, I know as dialed in on the Ukrainian side um, as the Russian side, but, you know, they are on multiple waves of mobilization at this point. I forget which exact one, but they've they've done several. So that's who they're bringing in on their side to, to fill out their ranks, a small percentage of them. Um, they are being trained abroad in the UK and in, in Europe. So they're getting that experience with them, some here in the United States on Patriot, and they're coming back to be part of this counteroffensive. The Russians, for their side, of course, they're um, you know done ad hoc uh, mobilization. They've done formal mobilization of three hundred thousand, and now they're trying the ad hoc version again right now to see if they can persuade people to join. Not a lot of people are signing up, 
And I think they'll have to mobilize again, probably this summer or potentially fall. Mm. Several people have been writing in about the role of the Wagner Group. Uh, they're, of course, a collection of mercenaries run by Evgeny Prigozhin. Uh, we know they've played a key role in this war so far. We've also been struck by Prigozhin's strange videos of late railing against Russia's performance so far. Dara, what should we make of those videos, Prigozhin's role, and what does the use of Wagner reveal about Russia's ability to fight this war? Um, well, I would say that the complex take is is, is the same as the, is the hot take, which is this is a mess. This is a messy situation. Um, Wagner played a very important operational role last summer, in particular in the Donbass. They kind of came in and patched things up when the Russians were, um, they had retreated from Kiev and they were bringing them around again to be part of the Donbass fight. Um, that was very critical that Wagner bridged that gap at that time, um, took a lot of casualties um, in the process. And that's when they started recruiting from prisons to fill their ranks. And they do end up poaching sometimes from um, line MOD forces. They come join Wagner, um, a smaller level though. But right now with this mess that we're seeing, um, you know, Wagner has been kind of put at the front in Bakhmut to take a lot of those losses there. Um, if you look at a map um, of where all the Russian units are, um, Ukraine has emphasized Bakhmut it is a grinding, a grinding attritional fight um, mm -hmm. with the way the Russians are fighting it. And, and to some extent, the Ukrainians too. And they're putting Wagner there because it's like, have them have them take the losses and we'll put these reserve units behind Wagner. So it's very messy. Prigozhin's angry. Um, there's consistent bad blood between him and the brass of the MOD leadership. This has been ongoing for a long time since Syria or even potentially before Shoigu and Prigozhin had drama over um, catering contracts in the, in the military the, you know, 10 years ago or eight years ago now. This is a petty grievance between the two of them. And I guess I'm, I mean, I, I know that this dynamic exists. I know that Putin does faction balancing to try to keep everybody off balance. But I've been surprised to see it get to this level where they've been trying to do something and take Bakhmut for six months now. And they're letting this kind of infighting happen to them. Um, mm. And I will say, Prigozhin complains a lot that the military is starving him of ammunition and that they're doing it deliberately. I think that he's obviously very focused on his own objectives. And I think that they're, it's a part of a much larger conservation effort along the Russian front line right now to keep artillery stored up to use in, in, um, when the Ukrainians begin their counteroffensive to, to launch it at them. Um, so I don't know how much of his rhetoric that he's deliberately being starved is like specific to him or just a larger issue going on in the front line. He doesn't have insights on the entire front. Mm. Um, you know, we've heard, uh, Dara, we've heard so much about the dysfunction uh, on the Russian side. Do you think they have the ability to bounce back, to clean up their act and could aid from another country, maybe China, shift things for them? Right. So, you know, there's there's a lot of churn at the top. Um, you know, I, I and I've, I've said this many times, I, I don't think that Grasimov is an effective wartime leader. I don't think that he's advocated um, for his force and pushed back enough um, on unworkable ideas. 
um, to the Kremlin. I think he's worked to keep the Kremlin happy. Um, case in point, ordering an offensive in January when the force just was not in a place to do it. And we can see what's happened. It's gained basically nothing. Um, in terms of can foreign aid um, help them? Yes, it can. Um, if China were to get involved, um, you know, potentially helping them um, in ways that are not obvious, like logistics, like meals, um, food, um, commercial imagery, like things like that. Um, these things can help the Russians um, in critical ways. Um, I don't know, and I'm not a China expert, so I don't want to speculate on, on where they are. But, you know, Russia's trying to go around to the few allies that it has, whether that's Iran or North Korea, to help them. None of what's been supplied have been a game changer. And, uh, and the larger question of can they get out of this mess? Not with Shoigu and Grasimov in charge. So, you know, by all means, don't replace those guys. Um, keep them where they are. I think there was a point in time in the fall when the operation was under a different command when they started settling in onto the defensive at that point. That to me was like a recognition that, okay, we are we can't go further. We need to just consolidate what we've already taken illegally and hold here. Um, and that commander was replaced. So, you know, there's just there's so many different levels of dysfunction. But if they were to return to that kind of um that kind of posture where they're not trying to actively push forward anymore and they're trying to consolidate and they, you know, just build and build and build. It's possible, but the, the damage to the army and the damage to the airborne force, it is, it is severe, severe. And of course there've been severe losses of life as well. Um, you know, Dara, we've spent so much time talking about war and battlefield dynamics um, I'm just curious how you think about the possibilities of a settlement. What do you think are the likelihood or the potential sort of outcomes that could lead to uh, a settlement of sorts or the two sides feeling like they can talk? Um, so, you know, again, I, I just count the tanks and I'm, I'm no diplomat. Um, but, you know, in terms of when the battlefield gets you to a place where you have to have those conversations, I just don't think that the Russians are capable of doing another large scale offensive for the rest of this year, next year, probably. There is a group of equipment, um, not a small group either, that is unaccounted for. And I don't know where it's at. My colleagues don't know where it's at. A um, couple hundred um, you know, armored vehicles and logistics. I don't know where that force is. And I don't like that. I don't know. I don't know if it's got any offensive oomph or what they're doing with it. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, the Ukrainians are very clear on this point. Um, you know, Russia has to leave. They have to go everything back to the 1991 borders. They're not interested in settling with them or giving away, um, parts of their territory. Um, the Russians, at least the the Kremlin, the current uh, regime, is not interested either in negotiating. I think um, just to focus back on what I know, um, I think the Russians would prefer the fighting to stop so that they can regenerate, whether that's a ceasefire or an armistice. Um, that's what the Russians want. 
And they've built their series of defensive networks along those areas that they control, which to me tells me that they don't have a long-term plan to try to take the eastern half of Ukraine. Like even they maybe know that that's over. Um, but you know, the Ukrainians, not no, they don't want it. They, I mean, and I don't, I don't blame them at all. I mean, how given everything that's that's happened to them, um, they want to get them all out. Um, that is that is contingent on the types of support that they continue to receive um, from the West. Mm. That's very insightful. Darren Massico, you are, of course, a senior policy researcher at the RAND Corporation. Your insights are so valuable. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And that was Dara Massico, a senior policy researcher at RAND Corporation. Next week, we're going to stay with Ukraine, but take a completely different angle. I will speak with a Ukrainian diplomat who's been traveling around the world trying to get countries in the global south, the ones that have been sitting on the fence, to care more about the war. Ukrainian Deputy Foreign Minister Emine Zaporova is on the show next week. Remember, if you want to watch these in video live, go to foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send questions in advance and those end up framing these discussions. Sign up, use the code FPLIVE, one word, for a discount. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. I'll see you soon. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, Professor of Law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. 
everyday ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.